The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yep. To talk about writing. And in general, kind of being an artist. Or to be more precise, how not to be a writer. Today we're going to talk about the reasons you shouldn't be a writer. I know this sounds odd, but you're going to find that the internet is filled with podcasts and websites and other places that are all telling you why you should be a writer. Because actually right now, some people say, is the best time to be a writer, perhaps in the history of mankind. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And there's lots of places that will tell you, yeah, you should just write, follow your writerly dreams right now. You can make a billion dollars doing it. But the truth is, you probably shouldn't. And we're going to tell you why. We're going to tell you that if you want to be a writer, there are some challenges you are going to have to overcome. Now, that said, before we do that, I'm going to tell you the rules of being a writer, at least according to Robert A. Heinlein, the famous science fiction writer. He said, and I quote, To be a writer, you must write, and you must finish what you write. If you follow those rules, if you write, and you actually finish what you're writing, congratulations, you are a writer. But if you want to be a paid writer, or someone who does this as a living or a profession, or to make a decent amount of extra money, maybe for your retirement or something, you're going to have to put a little more effort into it. <laughs> and so that's what we're going to talk about today. The effort and the things that it's going to require of you if you want to actually be a professional or a money-making writer, or hopefully a money-making writer. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, go right into it. So the first thing, since I talked about effort that's going to be required, is time. So, Don, why is it going to require time if you want to be a good writer? Uh, well, because I think the what, what Heinlein's really getting at, which is important, is you even if you don't necessarily want to be a professional writer, you just want to be a decent writer, you have to do it because you don't get better at things by just sitting around thinking about them. Mm-hmm. And for any kind of creative endeavor, it takes a lot of time to produce and it takes a lot of time to develop skills and it takes a that that's that's probably the absolutely yeah yeah that's probably your biggest hurdle yeah it probably is i mean writing is a skill people think oh you just sit down and you type put words next to each other in fact you'll even see writerly advice all over the place it's like i think even neil gaiman did that in his 10 rules of writing or eight rules or whatever it was he basically said yeah just put one word next to the other and keep (laughs) doing that until you make sentences and paragraphs and pages and eventually you've written a story or a book or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's technically true however doing it well like any other skill requires immense amounts of time yeah there are very few skills that don't require unless you're a natural genius of some kind a lot of practice. I mm-hmm. think the general rule of thumb, I've heard 10,000 hours is the uh, cliche, you know, to actually master a skill, 10,000 hours. 
Yeah. For writers, I generally the general writerly advice is your first million words. <laughs> they generally say try to get through your first million words as fast as possible because they're going to suck. And then in theory, <laughs> if you've actually managed to get through a million words, which is not as difficult as it quite sounds, you will be a decent writer yeah. or at least a competent writer. Yeah. That's the theory anyway, although there are many pulp writers who kind of dispute that. But I was going to say, if uh, in that case, if, if you're Stephen King, you did that like, you know, before breakfast today. So you're good to go. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stephen King, having read On Writing, his uh, autobiographical book about writing, which I also recommend everyone who wants to be a writer actually read. It's an amazing book. Um, and I say that as someone who's not even a King fan. Um, says that you should write, I believe he says, 2,000 words every morning, which is quite doable. Most people can write, if they are got a decent typing speed, they can write about 1,000 words an hour. So that's yeah. really about two hours work, mm -hmm. which doesn't sound that difficult. No. That's if you're kind of in the mode and you're writing well, mm -hmm. um, and you maybe if you have things planned, yeah, you can do that 1,000 an hour. If you're not doing so well, maybe you'll get like 10 words an hour done. It depends <laughs> on... Uh, how well you're writing that day. Yeah, there's there's that. The other thing with something like that, too, um, with the idea of, if you want to say be a writer, just write, is even if you just sit down in the morning and you type up, it's a fragment of a story and it totally blows, you never know where that's ultimately going to take you. True. Like, I'm kind of more of a visual guy than, say, like a literary guy. And you'll do that if you're farting around, like... Um, practicing drawing something and it could just be something stupid you never know what's mm -hmm. going to click yep that's true like once upon a time i spent weeks drawing tires right just tires not tires on anything just tires right yeah when, when you're doing something like that not necessarily directed mm -hmm. you're developing a skill because your brain starts to, to 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 model things it starts to think through things a little differently and you never know where that'll take you. True. Because uh, you might, um, I know when I did the tires, I did black mm -hmm. and white and color. And it was where coloring tires all the time is where you learn about gray. Right. Yeah, you would. Mm -hmm. and, A lot of gray in tires. Yeah. And then you think about the road and tires don't blend into the road, but they're the same. But there's a different chrono, like not chronological, uh, uh chromatic there it is chromatic yes there's a different chromatic, chromatic register for for different things and there's mm -hmm. warm grays and cold grays and blah 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 and it's this little extra sniglet that you can add to your repertoire from just the the, the equivalent of doodling right and writers do that too as you said writers write fragments sometimes you never know when those fragments are going to end up becoming part of something yeah or inspire something later on I've got files and file folders and file folders on my computer filled with story fragments and pieces of stories mm -hmm. and uh, character notes and story notes. And, and some of them I come back to years later, sometimes even a decade or so later, I'll think, you know, what, what was I thinking about? And then I'll go back through my fragments and I'll discover, you know, it's kind of like a buried treasure that I put <laughs> there myself. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a squirrel sometimes. You know how squirrels actually prepare all those nuts mm -hmm. everywhere in the fall for the winter? And then half the time they forget where most of them were. And they'll, <laughs> they'll come across them later as kind of like buried treasures. Like, oh my God, who put this here? Oh, wait, I did. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like being a writer sometimes, at least for me anyway. Um, so, yes, I mean, ultimately all that work does pay off. 
but there is a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, you can't just sit down and think, I can write better than him and do it. Some people can. There are occasional people who do. That's true. But there are also occasional people who win the lottery. Think about your odds (laughs) on that. Yeah. And while you're doing all that time, let's talk about the next thing hurdle that you're going to hit being a writer, and that's family. Mm. Um, family, friends, social life, you know, all those things that involve not being at your computer and not actually um, writing. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you need to spend tons of time on your writing yeah. or art, as the case may be. So sometimes you have to choose. It's not easy to balance those things. Yeah. And um, your significant other um, is not always going to be that happy or appreciative of the time you're spending on writing. Yeah. Your dogs are not going to be that appreciative of the time you spend on writing. That's why They're most... going to want to play or go out or do whatever. And you're going to be like, no, I need to finish this. But <laughs> nope. You know, family duty is going to call and it's going to call during the worst possible times. Yeah. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience, but you know that I, I have heard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and plus you, you love your family, hopefully, and you want to spend time with them. But the, again... You also have to spend time writing, which is a solitary thing. Yeah. Um, Also, back to the family thing, and we'll get more into this later, but there's also the whole thing of, well, if you have a steady job, that's okay. But if you don't have a steady job, you might be better off finding a steady job instead of spending your time writing. Mm. Or um, it may make things difficult finding a partner, actually, if you're, you know, spending your time writing. Yeah. Um, many writers are introverts, so it's hard for them to get out and be social to begin with. But finding a partner for writers is not always an easy thing. Yeah. Um, or artists for any kind, really. But uh, it can be a pretty lonely life, yeah. uh, which many writers channel back into uh, their writing. But <laughs> that's that's the way it goes, I'm afraid. Yeah. Because um, that, that, be, that tends to be uh, reciprocal, I think. Mm-hmm. That a lot of people who really get into any kind of creative endeavor, right? Um, a lot of that starts when they're young because mm-hmm. of social isolation, right? That's true. Either like you're the weird kid nobody wants to talk to, or you have a deeper interest in stuff other than like hanging out and going to the dance and blah blah blah, right? And that's fine when you're young, but there does come a certain point in your life when you want other people to be part of your life, but it's not always compatible with um, your artistic endeavors. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And so that can isolate you. Like what yeah. was a uh, refuge when you were young can sometimes actually turn into a prison as you get older, depending. It yeah. De- depends on what stage of life you're at well, and not... what you're doing and how things are set up. <laughs> well, not just that too, but you also, um, if you're really making a push for any kind of creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I find happens with um, like friends, family and associates is a lot of them probably don't value the kind of things you do. Yeah, that's true. And you'll get that. Like I, I know um, uh, people who are artists and they're not necessarily, it's not their career, but they do pretty good doing it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their family still think they're wasting their time. Yep. And they'll let you know that in no uncertain terms. <laughs> yep. Actually, as someone who's been involved with uh, writer communities online in that, I will tell you, it's astounding the number of writers who are homemakers of one kind or another. Because there are 
some men too, but for the most part, they're women staying at home, taking care of their kid mm -hmm. or kids, and they need an outlet or they need something to do. Yeah. And so they start writing. They use that extra time for writing if they are of the creative bent. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, it's the fact that their husband is out paying the bills that lets them do that. Yeah. That's why there are so many homemakers who are out there, you know, putting novels out or just often churning them out actually on <laughs> Kindle or whatever. It's yeah. because, yeah, I mean, they have someone supporting them and taking care of them financially. So they have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Which is not always true for um, those who have to work to survive. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the, one of the other things, if you, if you do anything creative, even if it's not um, with intent of, of a profession mm -hmm. is you'll find um, a lot of people will say, like, if you tell them, oh, you should get a hobby, you should sculpt, like, busts of people or whatever, what they'll respond with is, I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. And what they don't understand is, you make time for that. If it's something you really value, you do, yeah. Yeah, like, and and it's, you have to, and I think that's one of the reasons you'll get, like, um, a fair amount of derision or disrespect if you're pursuing a creative endeavor, again, not even just professionally, because people will, you know, say stuff like, well, it must be nice to have all that time to waste doing that when I got to do 400 tons of laundry and take care of a thousand kids every day and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my response is usually, yeah, should have used a rubber. Ooh, Condom, okay. Condoms cost the buck, kids you pay for for your entire life. They pay you back. No, they don't. Way. No, don't kid yourself. <laughs> well, we're not going to go there. This is, the, this I... is the cyberpunk era. It's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Well, um, on a slightly well, on a slightly different note, uh, to, to your point about making the time, I th remember once uh, hearing about there was a British mystery writer whose name escapes me. I think I might have mentioned him in one of our shows a while back, way back, mm -hmm. um, who basically just got up every morning at like 5 a.m. and wrote for two hours, mm -hmm. then got breakfast and went off to his day job. Yeah. And he, he churned out like Stephen King levels of novels, but that was just writing for two hours every morning. Yeah. And I wish I knew the name of this dude, but I heard about him on a podcast. I think it was Mary Robinette Qual on the Writing Excuses podcast mentioned him. But anyway, mm -hmm. but um, I've always taken that as a bit of an inspiration. I mean, if you really want to write, yeah, you will find the time. I've heard of writers, for example, that work all day and even put the kids to bed and everything and then squeeze in their like hour, hour and a half from like 10 to midnight each night or something yeah. like that. Instead of watching TV, they go off and write. Yep. Or And there are artists who do the same thing. I mean, if it's really important to you, you will make the time. You'll find the time. Mm -hmm. But I can't tell you it's going to be easy. It's probably not going to be easy. Yeah. There was actually a, a cracked article uh, mm -hmm. months back that talked about the idea. Uh, they used the example of exercise. Mm -hmm. That I'm going to wake up every day and jog for two hours. What nobody ever thinks of, and, and this is what the article is about, and I thought it was a good point, is mm -hmm. what this will cost you. Right. So if you're going to, say, spend that two hours jogging or writing or painting – that two hours that you spent sleeping or like watching TV or that you got something out of that and you're not going to be getting whatever that is if you're mm -hmm. using that time for something else. Yes, exactly. And everything has a cost. Everything has an opportunity cost. 
Yeah, and if you're just sitting there watching TV, well, that's usually decompression time. Exactly. And you're not going to have that if you stop watching TV and start jogging. Yep, exactly. Although many writers will say that they find uh, writing therapeutic yeah. and relaxing. And in some, in fact, for some people, it's almost a form of meditation. Yeah. So, and same with drawing. Drawing or playing a musical instrument, many creative endeavors for many people, especially those who are drawn to it, mm-hmm. are actually therapeutic in their own way. Yeah. Um, I think there is definitely something therapeutic about writing horror stories about killing off, you know, various people <laughs> you do not like. Um, I think that, that would actually be very therapeutic. I haven't done it myself, of course, but I think that there would uh, be something therapeutic about that. Oh, who who was it? Mil- Milton Caniff, I think, hmm? when he did uh, the Terry and the Pirates comic right? way, way back in the day. Wow, that's dating yourself, Don, but okay, sure. No, this is before I was even born. I know it was, yeah. yeah. But I believe it was him that when mm-hmm. he drew the bad guys in the comic, he because he, he, was, he was still in school when he started it, he'd draw them to look like all the people he didn't like. Right, yeah, it makes sense. So, like, the class bully would be, like, the Nazi that the hero shoots and kills at the end of the one story and stuff. Right. Where's... I suspect that happens a lot, especially with comic artists, but general writers as well. Yeah, nowadays, though, that gets you put on a list. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Well, yeah, unfortunately. Um, so, and, yeah, yeah. That's why you write under a pseudonym, dude. That's why you write under a pseudonym. So hopefully nobody's tracking it back to you. <laughs> right now, I can't imagine being a horror writer or like one of those like thriller writers mm-hmm. and actually writing under your real name. Because, I mean, if you really wanted to get into the nasty stuff, I mean, people are just, yeah, you're going to get put on a list somewhere. (laughs) There's absolutely no question on that. Yeah. I guess, and that's what, actually here, that's actually another good point. Looking into the disadvantages of being a writer, the challenges of being a writer, um, is that, yeah, you do have to consider that. I mean, some things, you're going to just be pulling them out of your imagination or even maybe your actual dark side, but mm-hmm. but not something you'd actually act on. But people are yeah. going to read that and go, whoa, I didn't know you were like that. That's an actual consideration, especially these days. Yeah. Uh, where people are constantly judging each other and um, people are constantly um, putting each other on lists and things like that. Yeah. Uh, based on what they say online or do or whatever. I mean, in theory, I mean, if you have one character do creepy stuff in a book or something like that that's not really an issue and people will probably just say okay well that's the bad guy that's fine Mm -hmm. if you have bad guys you know creep on young girls every single book that you write people are going to start to wonder after a while though well they they will and again it it gets um it gets to a lot of points because there's also the idea if if you're an artist of some kind Mm -hmm. what do you owe society what does society owe you that's true. Um, but it's it they've they've had some cases come up mm-hmm. recently that broached that idea like at what okay. point does it stop being fiction right um because if if you write something because we talked about this in a couple episodes if you write something that's kind of weird and creepy people are somewhere somebody's gonna lose their shit about it and in like the internet age they're they're gonna like put it everywhere that you're mm-hmm. this horrible terrible vile person Right, that's true. 
because I was I was watching something about that where uh, they were interviewing somebody who was talking about you know what kind of a a mind is it that would write detailed say like murder stories like this is a person thinking of murder all the time and there's something wrong and maybe these people should be examined and I thought well with all the CSI series that are on and the people required just to produce that many shows odds are one out of every twenty people in north america has written a csi episode so we're all gonna that end up right. in prison yeah i was gonna say was agatha christie really actually like a serial killer that just <laughs> put her all her work in fiction yeah is stephen king like the most horrific mass murderer of all time or like just truly twisted individual or is he just someone who's just putting his dark side on the page what? rather than or not even his dark side. I mean, you know, some of his um, nightmares on the page doesn't mean just because it's in the book doesn't mean he actually likes that. Yeah, and and again, it's it's there's even more uh, difficult cases out there. Mm-hmm. I can think of two. There was one a few years ago where a dude was arrested for child pornography mm-hmm. because he was basically writing these these like stories that were child pornography, right. But the uh, the case, I believe he didn't go to jail because they said it wasn't real. Right. That the stories were fiction, like nobody was actually getting hurt. So right. they couldn't actually convict him. Which makes, that's perfectly logical. Yeah. And then there was also the uh, the case of the cannibal cop. I don't know if you remember that. Remind me. It was this dude, he was a police officer, and he wrote fiction, and he was on these, like, websites where people would write fiction and discuss, like, kidnapping people and murdering them and eating them and that. Okay. And he went to court. Um, There was more to it, again, because they said he was writing all of this stuff and talking on these websites. He was actually considering doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what ended up making his case more difficult was, as I recall... Mm-hmm. He um, was actually using his position to check up on. He was writing about actual people, mm-hmm. and he was using his position and authority to keep tabs on these actual people he was writing about murdering and eating. Okay, so again, that that kind of crosses that line a little bit because it's technically still imaginary, but there yes. there does appear to be action, and even then, it's the idea of using real people. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you gotta wonder, that kind of approaches that line. Like, if I'm writing about killing and eating somebody I made up, Mm -hmm. that's a little different than if I'm, like, writing about, like, killing and eating, say, Chad. Yeah, exactly. So that's that that gets that little creepier. But it's still, it's at that line where if I haven't actually, like, stockpiled rope and pepper spray to knock Chad out and season him just right... For, for when I finally cannibalize I'm sure, him. I'm sure Chad's feeling really comfortable <laughs> right now listening to this. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but I, just, um, I don't know why. Uh, that's just the first example that popped in from my mind. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. Chad, I'm, lock your door. I'm All not right. a freak. But anyway. But that goes back to our point. Like, I mean, you know, you bring this stuff up. And yeah. so I guess this goes back to, again, my original point, which is, yeah, sometimes writing under an assumed pen name is not a bad idea. Yeah. There are definite, there are disadvantages to it, but there are advantages to it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of them, which is that uh, you can sometimes be a little freer to write what you want, because if you use your real name and your family reads this, <laughs> and actually, 
Yeah, let's just... It doesn't even have to be that extreme. Yeah. I mean, you, let's say you want to be a writer and you're writing some you know, romance novels or something or even, even westerns or something like that. And you know that your parents are going to read this at some point, You know, that they're really happy that little Billy is actually... Or little Susie has written a book or whatever. They... There's a thing that goes on in your head where it's like, well, wait, if my mom's going to read this, maybe I better, you know, tone it down, you know, that kind of thing. Unless your mom's into like, you know, hardcore action and pornography, which is okay. That's fine too. But the (laughs) thing is, is that you, you naturally kind of hold back Mm -hmm. and that's not a good thing. I mean, as a writer, you generally should be like giving it your all Yeah. and depending on the audience and depending on what you're trying to do. But having limitations like that because you know people that you know are going to read this yeah it does affect your work and so that's something to think about as well i'd also say it goes the other way too because it's the idea of um if you're going to write something truly horrifying and disgusting Mm -hmm. i think you have to give consideration to how that's going to 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 come across and whether or not that's uh going to be suitable for your for your work Right. And I don't mean that in a don't do it kind of way, because you have to remember, like, I grew up on the underground comics, mm-hmm. which were known for their, like, blatantness and disturbingness. And I'm a huge Gona Guy fan, and he's the dude that added gratuitous sex and violence to Japanese comics. Yes, he did. So I'm not saying don't, but I'm saying it's something you have to consider if you're going to start, you know, crossing these lines and that. Because mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that always drives me nuts is when... um you get some kind of artist who produces a controversial work and then gets all freaked out because it's controversial. Right. And then you start thinking either this person's full of shit and just loves the, uh, the attention, attention or, oh my God, you're the dumbest person on earth. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I don't know why people get offended at my statue of Abraham Lincoln blowing Jesus. That doesn't make sense. Like, it's, it's just art. Oh, shut up. Yeah, you're exactly <laughs> right. They either are faking it or they are completely clueless mm-hmm. one way or the other, which I, and, and both can happen. Like, um, I've heard stories of different, different, like say cartoonists that have produced works that they didn't think was going to offend as many people as it did. Mm-hmm. Well, someone once said, I think good art should offend the viewer or reader as the case may be, <laughs> or should, should make them feel or make them whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I guess probably it's good art should provoke a reaction. That's probably yeah. what it is. So sometimes you don't always get the reaction you were expecting. No, you don't. <laughs> That's just kind of the way it goes, which actually leads into the audience. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when you're doing something, you definitely have to take your audience into account and yeah. how your audience is going to react. Yeah. And as we've said, your audience does not always react the way you expected them to. Mm-hmm. Um, but a flip side of that is that you have to know who your audience is when you're writing. Or get lucky. Or get really lucky. Yeah. I mean, yes, you could do the Stephanie Meyer thing. She's the one who wrote Twilight. And just get completely lucky that you happen to have twinged on to the exact perfect, uh, the exact perfect frequency mm-hmm. or whatever for your uh, audience. Yeah. But in most cases, you do have to take your audience into account because mm-hmm. you have to know what do they know, what do they expect – what do they like? What don't they like? How do you reach them best? Yeah. I mean, and those are actual skills as in people skills. You have to actually understand other human beings. Yeah. Which is it. That part can be kind of difficult considering what we were saying before, how a lot of creative people kind of start in isolation. Exactly. 
Um, a lot of writers become writers because they don't want to deal with other people. But if you don't know how to deal with other people on some level or how other people work, you're not going to be a very good writer. Yeah, I'd, I'd say essentially, but tying into the, the luck out kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, you can sort of fall into a crowd. And I think this is, again, like we've talked about before, like the Stephanie Meyer thing, mm -hmm. is you get, say... Um, like I don't want to say they're not like say B-list artists or or uh, minor artists, but mm -hmm. you can get people like say I grew up like goth emo and I was into like the the emo scene and I listened to emo music and I dressed emo and I wrote emo poetry. Well, there's a chance that other emo people might enjoy my poetry. That's true. So. I've got a connection to that audience, but I can't expect that, say, the normals out there are going to really get anything out of this. That's true. However, there's always the thing that I might say I want to expand either my audience or my repertoire. Mm -hmm. And I can start taking, say, those emo sensibilities mm -hmm. and with a little, little luck, little skill, little perseverance, put it in a form that's more that that a general audience would respond to because it would be in those ideas, but put in terms that they're going to understand. Yes. Yeah. Take something that's part of a subculture that you're intimately familiar with and find ways to translate it to the larger culture in general. Yeah. And then everybody accuses you of selling out, but <laughs> which doesn't matter if you're actually making a living at it. If you're actually doing pretty well at it, screw them. Yeah, and it's and it's it's that too. I think also you got to be careful about the selling out kind of idea because mm -hmm. sometimes what looks like that is an artist looking to expand like their abilities or looking mm -hmm. to bring their ideas to a, a bigger audience. It's not just crass commercialism. Right, right. That's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you're just expanding in different ways as an artist. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, it's not about the money. The money just happens to be a side benefit, you know, being able to eat and pay the bills, you know, <laughs> that, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, which is something that many artists struggle with. Yep. And uh, especially writers, especially these days, which, okay, so why don't we actually get to that? Um, so another disadvantage of being a writer uh, these days, I kind of touched on it earlier, is that it's really hard to make money. Yeah. Um, there was a ebook that's referred to as the Kindle Gold Rush days, <laughs> um, which was right after the Kindle came out, and for a couple years after, like when the whole ebook thing started, you could publish a book because there wasn't that much competition and make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And there were a few tricks to this. For a while, you had to actually like offer like free samples or things like that. But eventually, you could probably actually make some decent money. In fact, this is where most of the big names in Kindle and the so-called Kindle millionaires and that came from. Right. Most of them came from this period. They were people who published decent work during that time. Mm -hmm. And there was a fair amount of crap and they published decent stuff. <laughs> and But because there wasn't as much competition, they actually did really well. Mm -hmm. Now... The market is absolutely flooded with everything humanly imaginable. 
<laughs> and um, if you want um, dinosaur porn, you've got dinosaur porn. <laughs> and you know what? If you've got, if you want stories about <laughs> romantic space dwarves, you've got romantic stories about romantic <laughs> space dwarves. If you want whatever, it's out there. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, it's literally like clogging the system at this point. The uh, the truth is, everybody, their brother, their sister, their cousin, and their uncle is right now writing ebooks. They were told it would actually be an easy way to make money. Yeah. And the system was not designed to be good at helping you find those books. It really only helps you find the top ones in each category. Yeah. And so unless you're becoming a master of marketing and business and getting the word out there, the odds are very few people are actually ever going to see your work. Yeah. Well, they're at that, least if you go independent anyway. Yeah, it's a mixed blessing there too, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to say the first thing that makes me laugh is you mentioned the dinosaur porn thing. I was reading an article fairly mm-hmm. recently where they talked about some of the, the strangest things that you see in the self-published book market. Was it on Cracked? That's where I remember reading about the dinosaur porn. They yeah. had an article about that. Yeah. It was Cracked and I, there was another one that, that had, it had worked its way on. And I remember that because I remember thinking, well, how is that like possible? Because like dinosaurs are reptiles and they hadn't, and then I realized I'm thinking way too much about dinosaur porn and tried to block that out of my head but anyway good idea good idea thank you internet but but again it's it's i think if you're gonna look at like um nowadays self-publishing your works Mm -hmm. the thing is the way the market works is it's more open for more people to actually make money producing their own work Mm -hmm. but it's a lot less likely that you're ever going to make enough money that this will be your living Exactly, exactly. And um, even the, I got to tell you, even the big actual publishing companies, which do do still exist, despite what the self-publishing acolytes will tell you, um, self-publishing is somewhere around 40% of the book market right now. Yeah. And it's stalled out basically at this point for various reasons. But the truth is 60% is still traditional publishing. Yeah. Even though traditional bookstores are not, very healthy right now in a lot of places. Some places they are. Um, the truth is those traditional publishers like Simon & Schuster, I think it's the big four or big four and a half where I think we're down to four big publishers mm-hmm. um, are actually still making a ton of money and producing a ton of books. And there's also the mid-level publishers as well. Yeah. And most people are still relying on them to get the quality stuff. Yeah. Or even it's, I think what you'll start finding um, with uh, the internet thing is you end up with um, that the the equivalent mm-hmm. because there'll be say websites that that catalog and store and you can download say self published novels. They'll mm-hmm. start to be more and more of those that become bigger. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about say downloading ebooks, most people will say, "Well, I got this thing on my Kindle." Well, that's like that's the Amazon one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then those people are likely more likely to peruse Amazon yep. to find it, even though like there's all kinds of self-published websites where somebody will put their own work up, but you're not as oh, like, tons. yeah. And, and they'll slowly get kind of squeezed out because you'll get like the Amazons and that, that will, that right now it's, it's, it's easy and it's cheap because you can just, computer memory is cheap. You can store tons of whatever you want. Oh Yeah. It's basically costing Amazon almost nothing to have those books up and yeah. to distribute them. 
Yeah, so it's basically just pretty much pure profit for them. Mm-hmm. That's why actually Amazon actually pays like 70% to the writer. They only take 30% of the price mm-hmm. for ebooks. That's pretty good. Well, that's because it literally is, that 30% is almost free money. So yeah. they're like, okay. Plus, excuse me, plus the idea was is that it keeps them from going over to the competitors. Yeah. Um, there, there were competitors at one time. There were still kind of sort of competitors, but the truth is Amazon rules the roost. Yeah. It's pretty much just Amazon. And then there's like the Apple iBook store and there's Barnes and Noble may still have one. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much it at mm-hmm. this point. Kobo, Kobo still around. They're okay. based out of Toronto. And so at least as far as the big, you know, ebook e-reader markets go, though that's pretty much it. But it's like almost all Amazon. It's like I think 80% or 90% Amazon. The other ones are fighting for the small pie that's left over. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to actually publish or self-publish, um you really are going to go to Amazon. I mean, you really Amazon's the only one in the room. And that has its own disadvantage because it's just a matter of time before Amazon decides, you know, 70% is a little much. We want 40% or 50% or more because Amazon is just a shade away from being a monopoly as it is. Yeah. And so they're eventually going to pull the rug out from underwriters. They've actually already done that a couple of times, not changing the price. But what they've done is things like they created the... um, kindle reader program where suddenly all your books were available for people who have amazon prime which is the service down the states uh-huh. they could sign up for oh what's it called i'm suddenly blanking on it but it's basically like netflix for books you right. basically pay one price per month it comes with prime for free i think and you basically can read all the books you want for free mm-hmm. and the writer gets paid by the page and the rate is really really crappy just like the old days <laughs> exactly yeah so anyway, this all comes down to this. Being a writer, especially a self-published writer, is incredibly hard work because you have to do all the business side and all the marketing yourself. There's an astounding amount of competition unless you have a really good niche or you're incredibly good again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a meritocracy that way. I mean, the really best do actually tend to rise to the top. But the truth is most people are not the best. And if you're a struggling newbie coming in, you're not going to be the best either. Yeah, and I... I, I don't know if i'd necessarily say best uh because it's a lot of times too it's not necessarily um a measure of quality Mm, that's true there's a lot of finding a niche that nobody else knew was there and then being the first one in Mm. so you know like if you like um i hate coming back to this but the very first person who wrote dinosaur porn Mm-hmm. probably made a, a, a ton of money doing that. Probably, yeah. Because I'm betting that's a niche that nobody knew was there, and it was a kink that a lot of people didn't realize they had. I, I totally believe that, yeah. I'm, and then a lot of people read it just because they heard dinosaur porn, and so they read it just to see what it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'll spend a buck on that just to find out, not that I did, but but <laughs> you know, people, will say, people will say that. I mean, you know, because... Yeah, I mean, there's all these different kinks. And I know that that's kind of what happened with the whole erotica scene for a mm-hmm. while there. Was that once dinosaur porn took off, everyone began writing every sort of you know fetish and kink porn they could come up with. Mm-hmm. Because they were all hoping to get some of that sweet dinosaur porn <laughs> money. You know, you, you understand what I mean. The sweet fetish <laughs> porn money. Yeah. Um, and it reached the point where actually on Kindle... 
porn is basically um, ghettoized. Mm-hmm. It's there, but you have to go digging really deep to get into the porn areas because they didn't want their system to be known for a place to get porn. <laughs> yeah. So if you have actual porn, it actually has to be buried somewhere deep within the Amazon system. Now, people who really want it can get it and find it, mm-hmm. but it's not easy. Well, and It's kind of buried at the back in that little... <laughs> little room at the back of the store the dark part where nobody goes exactly except for that guy in the overcoat <laughs> but that's the other problem too that um i think when we're we're entering i guess the the post internet world mm. um the idea that you've got a lot of um well you had a lot of this creativity and inventiveness and creepiness and everybody did everything but mm-hmm. you're starting to see the return of the gatekeepers because you're starting to see Mm-hmm. The, the websites that that one for distribution yep and then you'll see a narrowing again because it'll be like say amazon decides that there's stuff for whatever reason they just mm-hmm. don't want to deal with and then it's yep. all gone yep well the erotica sites responded by creating new erotica ebook sites that are specifically for that stuff but again they're not on amazon yeah and and you're getting you're getting less distribution and it it becomes also um, one of the other problems with making a living self-publishing stuff is the the mediums themselves start breaking into ever-specific subgenres mm-hmm. because again, like we said, you it, it doesn't really cost any any money or that to put up anything you want, mm-hmm. and as they splinter into the smaller subgenres, what ends up happening is your audience gets smaller and sm- they get more loyal. But there's less of them. There's less of them, yeah. Yeah, so you'll get people who like, well, I don't like general dinosaur porn, but if there's a pack of Cephalosaurus in it, I am so there. <laughs> right. And then you're like, well, well, how many people are writing pack of Cephalosaurus porn? Well, there'll be a couple. And then you're like, right. how many people are that interested in specifically pack of Cephalosaurus porn? And there'll be some. So you've mm. got this ready-made market who is probably going to be frighteningly loyal to... Frighteningly loyal. <laughs> yeah. And... And they're not going to be enough for you to make a living doing it. Right. Well, there's a saying among the self-publishing circles that what you need is like a thousand true fans. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need really to survive in the self-publishing market. Yeah. And with the logic being this. So let's say I was capable of putting out a book a month. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sell that book for $4. Amazon takes their cut. Mm Mm-hmm. That's I get three dollars a pop. Well, if I've got a thousand true fans who all buy that book, that book just made me three thousand dollars. Yeah, which is not great money, but for if I can do that once a month, that's okay. Yeah, assuming that and assuming if I can, if I'm good enough to get a thousand true fans, I've probably got lots of casuals on top of that and other things as well. Right. It is a numbers game. You and you really have to play that numbers game. And getting the thousand true fans sounds easy, but it's pretty tough. And I'll keep in mind what I just said. You would have to be able to do that once a month, or yeah. maybe once every two weeks, or or charge more, or all these other things that you have to take into account from a business side. Something that many writers do not want to deal with. Yeah. I mean, once upon a time, you wrote a book, you got an agent, and you let them take care, them and the publisher take care of everything. Yeah. Now, if you do that, you're probably just going to get screwed over yeah. because the uh, the publishers at this point, well, let's do the other half actually there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's say you poo-poo um, 
small press or um, indie, indie publishing, perfectly reasonable. You want to go for the big boys. Mm. As I just said, they're 60% of the market, perfectly reasonable. Here's the problem. You you went you would go with the big boys because you want to be taken care of properly. You know, like Stephen King is or whatever. Yeah. Except that's not going to happen. Because thanks to the fact that their sales overall are declining, the big boys have limited marketing budgets. And they have a very simple formula. The hot new people get the marketing money. The old hands, who they know are good sales, get the marketing money. The other 80 to 90% of writers who get published by them don't get the marketing money. Yeah. In other words, they literally will publish your book and then turn around and say, you have to do the marketing for your own book. Yeah. Congratulations. You get, if you're lucky, 15% of the <laughs> of the book price and you still have to do all the marketing that the self-publishers did. Yeah. But you got in a real bookstore. Congratulations, dude. Yeah. Well, there's there's the other part of the uh, the spectrum to that, which is, you know, mm -hmm. the, the winning the lottery in the, the publishing game is the idea of your work being picked up for transition to another medium. Yes, that's true. So like, say, them making a movie of your book. There are self-published books that have been optioned for movies and that too. That happens. Actually, here, you heard about uh, The Martian. Uh-huh. The, Mar the movie with Matt Damon that came out last year, about a year ago, that everyone went crazy for. That was a self-published book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It literally, it exploded. It got self-published. It exploded. Everyone loved it. It got picked up by a real publisher too, but that was after it had already done well as a self-published book. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it got option for Hollywood and everyone went nuts for it, for, you know, Matt Damon's character growing potatoes on Mars. <laughs> um, I read some of the book. I got a little bored pretty quick, actually, and mm. I, I'm okay with science, but oh my God, <laughs> it's literally a guy doing like calorie equations to try to figure out how long he can survive on Mars. Uh -huh. um, it's... <laughs> It's there's the phrase science the shit out of things. You have no idea what that means until you try reading The Martian. Um, science the shit. Oh my god! It's like a, it's literally a survival science lesson in in book form. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's fairly well written. It's just like oh my god, that's there's a lot of uh, detail here. Right. Anyway, um, hard sci-fi with heavy on the hard. Okay, so. Um, I got off track, but the key point is, but no, there are success stories from the self-publishing world. But as you say, if you're officially published, you've gotten past some gatekeepers and you're mm. a little more likely to get picked up by Hollywood or whatever, or get yeah. noticed. That, that, that definitely does seem to be true. Mm. Well, cause if you're in the bookstores, right, you're more likely to get noticed. Yeah. That's just the way it is. I mean, even Hollywood people do occasionally read books or wander into bookstores, even if it's just to buy coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Hollywood people. Anyway, <laughs> there goes our Hollywood listener. Hey, come back. Oh, well. I liked her. Oh, well. Anyway, whatever. All right. So the um, joking aside. Yeah, you're right. I mean, translating to other mediums, it does help if you go with one of the big boys. But self-published can go that way too and small press. Yeah. It's mostly about just putting something that for whatever reason clicks, right? Yeah. That it's, it's literally is still like winning the lottery. You have to write something that clicks with a greater audience. Yeah. And uh, that can literally turn into your meal ticket, which is not going to happen for the majority of writers and not going to happen for the majority of books. That's just the way it is. Yeah. It's your odds of winning the lottery are only slightly worse. <laughs> yeah. Depending on how many books you write. I mean, it's like every lottery ticket you buy, there's a better chance, but. Well, um, and, and not just that, but it's, it's the idea that um, let's say I self-publish books. 
Mm-hmm. And I've got 10 regular followers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put enough material out, mm-hmm. you can still make a, a fair like amount of amount of cash. Yeah, that's true. Like if I got 10 loyal followers and I can and and they'll spend a buck for one of my books and I can put three books out a, a week. Mhm. Like that's like 30 bucks a week kind of thing. Right. Um plus there's the idea that um Did you just say three books a week? Yeah. Okay, I assume you're writing we're talking short stories here. We're not talking actual novels or books or anything, but okay, go ahead. Oh no, this is this is like what I do. I don't sleep anymore. Okay, okay. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm one of those pulp era guys. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, well, I'm glad to hear you're being productive. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. Are you the guy writing dinosaur porn? That's you, right? No. We'll talk after. Okay. <laughs> I want to know your secrets, man. All right. So anyway. But you can do that. And then there's also the idea that um, um, when, when we were talking uh, with Jeff the first time, he mentioned passive income. Mm. Passive income is the way you go. If you can get it, it's awesome. Yeah, and and if I've got like say, I've written a thousand books, mm-hmm. and every month like one or two people just sort of out of curiosity wanders through my my archive wherever it happens to be, and you know will mm-hmm. buy one of them. If I've got enough of them up there, I can make make a couple of bucks. Yeah, you can actually. That's true. If every one of your stories sells ten copies a month, and you have a thousand stories. How much money is that? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's an, as It goes back to what I said earlier. It's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, you can win by quality and you can win by quantity. Yep. But neither of them is easy. No. And there's luck involved with, with uh, both, really. With both, yeah. There's luck involved with both. Although, if you do quantity, I mean, eventually you're getting some skill, too. You're going to produce some stuff that's actually going to win. I've generally heard that with self-publishing, the 80-20 rule applies, uh-huh. which is that... Um, of your work will be 80% of your profit. Okay. But the trick is that means you have to write at least 10 books before you're going to actually see a return. Yeah. Depending again, you never know which one's going to be one of the ones that's going to profit you. Yeah. And that, that goes kind of with the old, uh, the old adage for, if you're producing creative work, if you've been around for 10 years, now you're a fixture. Exactly. Yeah. That's true too. Mm. Um, I was talking uh, a few months ago with the Scottish science fiction writer, Gary Gibson, and he mentioned to me that uh, his first book, and he's written, I think, like six or seven books at this point, but his first book, Stealing Light, that he wrote, Mm -hmm. is actually still the one that makes most of his money. Yeah. Like, he's written a whole bunch since, but it's still that first book. That's what people buy. Mm -hmm. Even though he's written several series and everything, nope, they still keep buying that book. Yeah. With the audience, you kind of never know what's going to hit. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like, you can calculate it and plan it and increase your odds, but ultimately it's a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, you never know what's going to actually work. Yeah. So, you better produce the best work you possibly can. Yeah, and and, he, and prepare for surprises. <laughs> yes. Yeah, prepare for lots of surprises. I, I, had, mm. I had one. I uh, put a couple of old comics up on one website where you'd put them like page by page. Right. And I thought it was interesting because most of the pages got say like a hundred views somewhere around there. But there was one page that got like 3000 views and it was people standing around. Right. Like nothing happens. It wasn't an exciting, it was just people standing around. I'm like, really? This is what everybody loved? (laughs) Yep. 
I have similar things with both the blog, uh, my personal blog at robinpatterson.com, and my uh, old podcast, Kung Fu Action Theater. Mm -hmm. There are certain episodes, we did like almost 50 episodes of audio drama, most of which are in groups, ser grouped into series, mm -hmm. most of which are grouped into series of one kind or another. But there are certain episodes that when I look at the stats, just have massive numbers of downloads. And they're like in the middle of series. It's mm -hmm. like episode three <laughs> of this has like 20,000 downloads. And every other episode has like 6,000 downloads. It's like, why does episode three have so many downloads? Or why does this blog post get so many damn hits? It's, and it's like, I did this blog post about horses. It's like, why is this horse blog post getting so many hits? But it does. It just got linked to somewhere or is high in the rankings somewhere of something. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up just getting constant hits. Yeah. And I don't know why. That's, and that's just <laughs> the n random nature of the internet, right? That's yeah. just the way it goes. And then that would be the weird thing when you get that, like, say, one page that everybody loved. And you're like, well, how come you didn't look at any of the other stuff? Exactly. Yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, you listened to episode three. Why not one, two, or the other, you know, other set that came after, other 17 <laughs> that came after it? Why did you listen to just this? I don't understand. Um, but it, that happens. Three was um, awesome, but four was just way too commercial, I heard. <laughs> Apparently it was. Apparently it was. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, that's the thing. Like, writing... Like being any other kind of artist at this point, but definitely being a writer in this environment is is a lottery ticket. It really is. I mm -hmm. mean, you're not likely to win. The odds are not with you, but there is that possibility. Mm -hmm. um, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you in many different ways. Right. Now, one way to maximize being a uh, success as a writer is, of course, to produce quality work. <laughs> and that just doesn't just involve skill. I mean, you can spend three years of your life producing, let's say, 10 million words, okay, and be the most skillful writer ever in terms of skill, but still produce incredibly boring work. <laughs> because, or, you maybe your work is also incredibly derivative. Because the truth is, you need something that's going to make your work unique. And mm. the thing that's going to make your work unique is you. Mm. It's, that's the thing. It's going to make your take on the world and your perspectives and everything. That's what's going to make your work unique. If you are reading the same books, watching the same TV shows, playing the same video games, talking about the same stuff as everyone else, guess what? You're going to write the same stuff as everyone else. Mm. You need fuel that's not the norm, or at least is going to be unique to you. And that's one of the reasons why life experience is perhaps the, one of the most important things a writer needs. Mm -hmm. They need life experience both in terms of creative input, and they also need life experience in, to, in terms of... They also need life experience in terms of personal experience. Yeah. Um, as someone once said, uh, you can't write. What is it? Oh, what was it? What's your. What was the famous line that you always say, Don, about uh, life experience? Oh. Um, why? I did my PhD in, in life experience. Yeah, from The Simpsons. Yeah, I did my PhD <laughs> in life experience. Yeah, you can't do that it doesn't work you i mean you do get life experience doing your phd trust me but you get the same life experience that every other grad student gets pretty much um so the thing is the more you do and the more you see and the more you take in that's different from other people and his personal experience that shows up on the page it yeah. really does but the thing is you have to actually get out there and do 
You have yeah. to explore. You have to go out into the world. And I don't just mean to collect Pokemon and Pokemon Go. I mean, you have to really <laughs> go out into the world. Yeah, because it's, it's the sort of thing, um, I think the best example of uh, how not to do this was um, if you look at, mm -hmm. say, uh, superhero comics in the 80s, mm -hmm. uh, the X-Men took off. Right. There were 100 billion X-Men ripoffs. Right, because everyone read the X-Men. They all loved the X-Men, so they wanted to just do the X-Men. Well, and there was that. And then when you got to the 90s and the next generation of 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 uh, comic book guys started doing superheroes, you could tell they were the last generation of fans because every superhero team was Cyclops, Wolverine, 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 and the chick. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and, like, everyone was... and. It was it was the same stuff over and over because nobody had anything to add to the mix. Hmm. I'll go a step further back, actually. Maybe the older listeners would understand what I mean by this. A lot of the reasons why television from the, I'd say the 60s to the, 60s to the 80s probably, but we'll include 50s TV in this as well, but generally mm. we'll call it the golden and silver age TV. A lot of it is actually very well written. And part of that is because, and has a lot of impact. In fact, it's, a lot of it has a lot more impact than modern stuff does. And this is partly because it was written by an entire generation that had gone off to fight in World War II. Mm. These people had literally lived and fought. And I'm not saying you have to go off and join the army. And then, of course, by my state logic, shouldn't they all be writing the same thing? And the answer is yes and no, because they had a variety of experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, Gene Roddenberry wrote Star Trek based on his experience as a World War II bomber pilot mm -hmm. to get nerdy again. <laughs> um, and so as an end result, it shows. Like, he mm -hmm. really knew the military life and it shows in the original series much better than it does in the later Star Trek series that came along. Yeah. His experience shows in his writing and shows up on the screen mm -hmm. and people who lived, it shows in their work. It really does. Yeah. I mean, there's the old writers saying of write what you know. Well, you have to know something before you can <laughs> write it well, don't you? Yeah. And that's just not always. I mean, if you're a historical writer, okay, fine, secondhand knowledge is nice, but also, you know, learning about, you know, how people like crafted a sword, maybe by doing it or being involved with it or getting involved with team historical martial arts or, or mm. traveling to historical sites where you're writing about, that actually can add a lot. Yeah. I mean, things you can't get from reading a book, for example, or even some uh, diaries or accounts, you really need to actually live some of it or get some personal experience in there. Yeah, well, and because again, too, that's how you learn the uh, the small, the personal, the human mm. bits of it. Exactly. Um, to take that kind of uh, a little sideways, one of the things that I've noticed um, with most of the nerdly arts that never quite rings true is how sports are portrayed. Really? Okay, go go on. Yeah, because if if you look, one of the running things that you always see. In like just about every like nerdly uh nerdly story is there's always the gladiatorial combat episode, mm. and there's always like it, it's a fight to the death between our champion blah 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 and blah. And if you had any kind of like 
advanced society and this was something that you see in a lot of science fiction where they go to the planet where like they get arrested for something and then they're put in combat with like the champion and they have to blah blah well if you have any kind of advanced society you're not going to see that Mm -hmm. for the same reason that in real life pro athletes are babied because they've put a lot of money into these people and they don't want to see them getting wrecked before they get their enter like the entertainment cash out of the audience exactly yeah they're like pro wrestlers i mean they don't really let those guys get hurt. Well, they try not they're to. They're cash cows. Well, they try not to. Yeah. But they're cash cows. Yeah. I mean, you, you you don't want to kill the golden goose. Yeah. I mean, and that's and that's something that never like never comes up. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, you would think the most advanced societies would probably have found alternatives. Mm-hmm. You know, like sports, for example. Like, you know, not gladiatorial sports, but good old-fashioned regular sports. You know, the ones yeah. that are take the combat aspect out of it for the most part but are still kind of thrilling and interesting mm-hmm. like we do in real things you know like the olympics yeah yeah i can see your point that uh, they don't always do sport right um which is odd when you think about how sports obsessed north american society often is oh most societies and, yeah most societies that's true but north americans in this is my own personal observation are not very good at doing sports drama like they're really not. They're they're incredibly focused on it, but when it comes to actually producing drama about sports, about athletes that they're not for, they kind of suck. Yeah. I mean, there have been a few exceptions. Like uh, there was a football series called Friday Night Lights that was pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they really suck at it. Like North <laughs> Americans are just not very good at producing sports dramas. No. I mean. Not in the same way that, and I'm sorry, this is going to hurt some people's feelings, but the Japanese are really good at producing sports dramas. They yeah. really are. You sound like you're going to disagree. I can hear, I can hear that butt <laughs> coming, Don. I can oh. hear that breath going in for that butt. Go. Oh, I'm not going to disagree, but what I was going to say is there's a lot of places that are really good at that mm-hmm. that aren't here. Because if you want to talk, say, comics, mm-hmm. uh, the Brits do a lot of sports dramas. At least historically, they did. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, mostly about football, quote unquote. Well, yes, yeah, that their football. Mm-hmm. We know it's not real football, but whatever. <laughs> We're Canadian. There, what goes do we their, know? there goes our UK listeners. <laughs> oh, both of them. No. <laughs> oh, damn it! All right. <laughs> but but yeah, you're you're right that that's something. Well, we kind of here in North America, mm. we don't do straight up drama too well because we tend to fall into the the soap opera pattern. That's true. And it becomes really cartoony in a hurry. Yes. Yeah, our idea of drama is basically about, you know, men and women, like, having relationship issues. Yeah. And that's kind of it. And and having just the same ones over and over, and they get bigger, and there's always the scene where, like, the season ends with somebody shooting somebody else, and you're like, oh, okay, really? Yeah, well, that's because real relationship issues have real consequences. Remember, the North American formula is based on the idea that these characters change as little as possible because you want to milk as much money out of them as you possibly can. Yeah. And much as many entertainment dollars. As you just said about gladiatorial combat, like real drama is kind of like gladiatorial combat. It has real consequences. Yeah. And North American entertainment is designed around the idea of avoiding real consequences for as long as possible. Yeah. Well, there, maybe that's why they don't do it very well. Yeah, there's that. And I think when you come to things like, say, sports, that you get a lot, of, especially for like the nerdly arts, you get a lot of people that they may be fans, 
Mm -hmm. but they're not super into the nuts and bolts and that makes it hard to draw stories out from it. That's true. Yeah, I can see that. And it's the same talking too, like uh, what you were getting at. Mm -hmm. Um, When you get to like the more nerdly kinds of stories, you never really see entertainment portrayed unless it's part of the plot. They're trying to avoid it, I Mm. think. I mean, most people... When they're doing, say, science fiction, for example, yeah, the media, unless, again, it's part of the plot, as you said, is something to kind of be avoided because that's that extra level of creativity that you don't want to have to engage in. It's also a little bit risky Mm -hmm. because you never know how the audience is going to take it, so it's just easier to avoid it. Yeah, I I think plus two, there's there's the idea that um, a lot of people who end up, you know, producing, like, more nerdly entertainment come from that tradition and right. there tends to be a, I guess the word would be snobbery. Well, definitely, yeah. That you'll get people who are into sci-fi, especially, you know, quote-unquote hard sci-fi, mm. that look at contempt on sitcoms. Right. But the thing is, if you're creating a society, you're more likely that everybody in that society would partake of something like a sitcom over, like, you know, reading Asimov. That's true. Absolutely, yeah. And and you never really get that. And I think it's because um, for a lot of creators, it's not something they themselves have thought through. Mm. And it's not something like it's it's far afield from their own experience. So right. they have difficulty bringing that in in any kind of genuine way unless they make it part of the plot. Right. So they'll I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned way back in an early episode there was the Lost Fleet series of books that I read last year. Mm-hmm. Or I, I read like what? Uh, a, there are eleven books to the Lost Fleet series, the primary one, which is about it's the Buck Rogers thing where the guy comes gets basically frozen in suspended animation for his first century or so, and gets woken up and becomes like a great war hero in the new century. Mm-hmm. Okay. 11 novels, 11 thick novels about, you know, this guy being exposed to this new culture and new society and like fight, you know, fight, fighting a war among these people that he's learning to become part of and everything like that. Never once is there any mention of art or culture in all 11 books. Mm-hmm. Apparently, these people on these ships have no art or actually correction. There is there are vague indirect references to apparently they share pornography on their inter, on their <laughs> sh- on their fleet wide internet. Okay, they do actually make a reference to that. That there's apparently por- pornography is the only culture these people apparently have. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I think no, I think there might was be one or two minor references actually to like dramas or something, but for the most part, like. Yeah, I mean, you would think that it'd be like, okay, well, what stars are still, you know, what's the what what's your culture like? Nope, mm-hmm. everything is just about you know the war, the fighting, you know, the the cold military life and everything, which apparently is incredibly cold and sterile because we, we both know <laughs> military people don't talk about anything like cultural or anything like that. They only talk about <laughs> guns and stuff, right, Don? A lot of them do, but there's a lot of goofy shit that happens too. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, um, it's one of those things that. They and that's normal for sci-fi. I think I think that's just part of the paradigm, though. Mm-hmm. I think North American Western sci-fi definitely works on the idea of you know the focus on the story and anything extra, like culture, for example, or art, is generally relegated to the background if it's mentioned at all. Yeah, and and again, I think um, 
a lot of it comes down to tropes and that. Like you mentioned the military thing. Mm-hmm. And everybody is always like the 1950s-esque square-jawed serious guy. And since the 90s you've had any time you have like a Starfleet, they're all Grr, angry all the time. And right, yep. blah, blah, blah. Whereas um, if you've never been involved in the military, mm-hmm. this isn't necessarily... Like it's, it's something... Those tropes are probably all you know. Right. And it's not a realistic picture and it's not a fully fleshed out picture. And it's the kind of thing like the organization is made up of human beings and human beings have all kinds of foibles and, and that, mm-hmm. that nobody thinks of because that's not something anyone's ever really focused on before. Exactly. So to go back to our original point then, having a life experience with the military or connected to the military in some way helps a lot if you're writing about the military. Yeah. If you're writing about a military. Yeah, even just to uh just to flavorize it. Like you mentioned um Gene Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. And when you watch the original Star Trek, mm-hmm. um having had a little more experience with the military and watching it again, mm-hmm. you see all kinds of little things in it that you didn't notice before that I think lend kind of an air of credibility to it on a subliminal mm-hmm. level. Right. Like there's an episode where Kirk is getting stressed and McCoy is, is telling him that he needs to relax and McCoy's doing it in his typical, you know, restrained fashion. Mm-hmm. And he gets in his face like, Jim, you've got to take a break. You're pushing yourself too hard. You're going to, and Kirk gets pissed off at him mm-hmm. and like jacks him up. Mm-hmm. Like, proper military you listen to me mister you're my subordinate Matt. and if you watch mccoy comes mm-hmm. to attention really okay i never noticed that he stiffens up and he starts referring to him as captain i think i vaguely remember that yeah, yeah okay for the rest of that scene he doesn't call him jim he calls him captain and that's because right, yeah. even though they're friends right they're still military that military discipline is drummed into you yep even the doctor yeah and you can yeah. You can see those relationships in, in, in that regard, which is something, again, yeah, later series and a lot of, like, Star Trek ripoffs just don't have because I'm thinking the people mm-hmm. who were writing it, that didn't have the experience that, say, Roddenberry did. Right. I can see that. I can totally see that. Um, it was written by a bunch of people that, well, whose life experience was working in Hollywood as writers for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, the, the later stuff. I'm sure there was probably some military vets probably writing for the later Star Trek shows, but not that many. Yeah, and, and again, it's it, when you look when the original one came out, that was just like, what, 20 years after World War II? Yep, yeah, it was. So you, most of the people who were writing for it, again, going back to my point, had were people with actual military experience. Some people mm-hmm. who had actually fought. Um, same with the Westerns of the period are like that too. Mm-hmm. So, And I would like to think that even... The writers on, say, something like MASH probably were people who had actually been in combat or actually knew a little bit of what that was like. They might... I'm not, MASH I'm not 100% sure on, but I bet some of them. Well, I, I believe that MASH had something that we haven't seen for a while in TV and that they had consultants. Oh, well, there's that, yeah. And that was something I don't know if they do anymore, but you used to see that for... Oh, they do. They, there are consultants, yeah. Okay. You'll see them in the credits sometimes. You will see consultants still. Because I wouldn't think they would, because again, if you watch something like CSI where two people share like a keyboard and the CSI guys are going all Judge Dredd and bringing in the crooks, like you're like, 
I don't think there's a consultant on this show. That's not how it works. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, because CSI, I think one year the CSI actually won like some a science fiction award or something <laughs> like that. One of them did, actually. They won an award for like best science fiction show on TV, I think, or something to that effect. Uh-huh. For good reason. For yeah. good reason. Um, actually, and there's a flip side, though, going, um, which is now, of course, sometimes you can't get the life experience. Yeah. But if you can't get the life experience, you should at least make the effort to do the research, which, again, requires time and effort. Yeah. Um, I keep coming back to there was a story I read in a writer's craft book like this. And this was like 20, 25 years ago that I always remember. And this was a bit of advice. Uh, there was a short story writer who uh, this was back in the days when you know, there were actually magazines. <laughs> and um, so he he wrote a short story about a, what I think was like a tugboat captain. Uh-huh. And he wrote this short story and turned it into his editor and his editor rejected it. His actor, editor said, this is actually this is kind of dull. It's boring. You should, you know, either rework it or do something else. And so what the dude did is he actually thought, okay, well, I like this story. So let's see if I can beef, beef it up a little bit. So he lived in a port city. So he went down and he actually found a tugboat captain and he talked with him. And the captain's like, well, you want to come out? It's like, oh, okay, sure. And so he actually went out on the boat back in the days for the insurance company, probably wouldn't let that happen anymore, <laughs> but whatever. Um, he actually went out and he spent the day with the tugboat captain. He went back, he rewrote the story with all the new details and the editor bought it right away <laughs> because he was offering him something that had real experience. It suddenly, ha- the story came to life because he'd done the research. Yeah. Even if he couldn't be a tugboat captain, he'd at least gone out and spent some time with one and gotten the feel for the thing. <laughs> and that made all the difference in making that story and selling that story. Yeah, because it's, you can add those little bits that make it seem more tangible to the audience. Mm -hmm. And you can't really do that if you've never, if you don't have anything to compare it to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, and you can extrapolate it. Like if you're writing a story, like a horror story about, you know, this, this like dark woods where this evil monster lives, and it's all creepy and that Mm -hmm. if you've ever say gone camping Mm -hmm. and just walk, you know, like 15 meters away from like, your, your tent and just look you get that little taste of what that isolation is like yep yep you do and you record that and then you can you have that to extrapolate from some of it of course also has to come down to personal interest yeah um and uh because you really should be writing things that you're interested in mm-hmm. and this is kind of a double-edged sword because yes you should be writing things you're interested in, but what you're interested in may not always be what sells. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you might be interested in 15th century Aboriginal tribal romance. Okay, that's fine. There may not be a huge market for that. <laughs> True. So you might have to take into this into account. I mean, can you keep up the motivation? Can you keep focused and keep writing about this stuff if you're not interested in it? Mm-hmm. Or if you know that you're not going to make money doing it. Yeah. That's why I say it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, you well, sometimes have to choose between what you're interested in and what's actually going to make money. Because well, trust me, the more general derivative stuff, that's what makes money. Yeah. Um. There's also the problem, too, if, if you're interested in something. 
uh, it's difficult to step outside of it and get that big picture view. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you were, say, a, a hardcore Anne Rice fan and you were, like, into emo and then you wrote, like, your emo vampire stories, because you're so attached to that, you might have a difficulty critiquing your own work and saying, you know, this doesn't make sense and this doesn't fit with that. and this Because you're just writing the stuff that gives you an emotional response. That's true. Well, I guess it comes back down to how personal do you want to make it, right? Yeah. If you make stuff too personal, other people might not be able to relate to it anymore. Yeah. Well, there's that and there's also what I think um, a lot of creative people neglect is the theory side of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then that ties in with the idea of um, getting life experience, having a repertoire you can draw from, mm-hmm. um, and having given some thought to that. So it's not just that you go out on the ship with the uh, salty sea captain. You remember those experiences. You put them in some kind of context. Right. Uh, you wrap your head around it from a couple different angles. And then that lets you draw from that in different ways, depending on what it is you want to do with your story. All right, so I think we can probably uh, leave it there then. I think yeah. we've covered things pretty well. Um, I think, actually, before we go, I want to just mention that there is such a thing, though, as the universally specific, mm-hmm. which is the idea we're all human beings, right? Yeah. So we all relate to each other as human beings. So even if a story is very specific to you, let's say your experiences as a mail carrier, for example, you might be writing about your specific experiences, but other people who have jobs do kind of relate to it on the level of uh, having jobs, right? And mm-hmm. you're having to deal with the difficulties of uh, dealing with cl- customers and clients and things like that. So it's kind of a balance, really. It's finding a spot where you're not too personal, but you are still personal enough to add flavor and add yeah. something to the work. Well, that's um, it's also the idea of, of understanding the nature of your own work. That's true. Like if I'm writing about a a postal carrier, I should ask myself, am I writing about being a postal carrier? Am I writing about a character who is a postal carrier? Mm -hmm. Or am I strictly writing about an event that happens during this character's life as a postal carrier? Because each of those Mm -hmm. is going to come out totally different. That's true. And they're going to produce different results with the audience as well. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Well, and that's part of knowing your craft, right? Yep. Which goes back to the whole idea of skill and time and effort that you have to put into it. Mm -hmm. Writing, like anything else, requires skill. It really does. And skill requires time and effort. Yep. And there's no other ways around it. It's no different than becoming an artist. I mean, if you want to actually be able to draw half decently, how much time and effort does it require, Don? Eh, A bit. Yeah, just a (laughs) bit, right? Yeah, just a bit. As you said, it requires spending weeks drawing tires and things like that. And you get a lot from it. You do. But you have to put in that effort. You have to put in that time and effort. And those are the biggest things that you have to be willing to put in to be a writer or an artist. And you may have to do it without any real expectation of a solid reward at the end. That's the thing. The only reward you may get is actually um, a few people saying, oh, it's pretty good. Yeah. Or they might say, you know, you really should have taken up being a mortician instead. <laughs> Gone into the family business. That would have been a better idea. Yeah, I, I think you've hit on um, 
what the fundamental difference mm-hmm. uh, between, say, like an artist and I don't know a, a hobbyist, maybe. Right. Yeah. Is that idea? Are you producing what you're producing for the sake of producing it, or mm-hmm. are you producing it in anticipation of some kind of of reward or payment for doing so? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Why are you doing it? And you need to understand why you're doing it. Like yeah. that's part of personal motivation. Yeah. What's your motivation? To go mm-hmm. back to the old uh, actor's joke or line. Mm-hmm. Um, why are you doing it? And if you don't have a real reason why you're doing it, you may not get very far. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say that you always need to know. I mean, there are some artists who are just driven to do things mm-hmm. and they have no choice in the matter. I mean, yeah. Someone once said that um, if you're a true artist, yeah, you'll do it anyway. I mean, no matter what people tell you, how many people, how many times people tell you not to do something, you'll still do it anyway if you're a true artist because you have no choice. Actually, um, the phrase that comes to mind that I once heard somebody say was asking whether or not you should do this is like a normal person asking whether or not they should breathe. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you remember who said that. I don't actually. Who said that? You said that. Oh, I did. Did I? Yeah. Oh, okay. Like two years ago. <laughs> wow. Okay. There we go. Rob and, is smart. Um, <laughs> I can be sometimes. Rob is both smart and incredibly forgetful. My <laughs> um, Dude, my whole life has been a series of people coming to me and saying, you know, what you said was completely right. What you said was right on the money. And I'm like, what did I say? <laughs> no, you're supposed to go, yes, it is. I'm a genius. <laughs> Well, sometimes I do that. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 it was. and um, But I have no idea what they're talking about because I'm like one of the most absent-minded, forgetful human beings on the face of the planet. <laughs> Someone could actually ask me the secrets of the universe one day casually in passing, and I'll tell them the actual correct answer, and then, I'll, and then I won't know that I've said it. <laughs> I'm just that way. That's that's the way I am. But, you know, I'm, I really am the stereotypical absent-minded professor at times. I really, really am. Gee, I have trouble believing that. Hmm. Yeah, well, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Regardless. Um, but you're right. Some people refer to writing, for example, as, uh, what was it? Um, profitable mental illness. <laughs> um, um, there's like, yeah, it's a compulsion. Yeah. Like for writers, it really is a compulsion. Yeah. And... Um, I think that um, if you are a writer, you really have no choice. You'll write. It's just something that you'll just instinctively do it. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a writer and you heard everything we said and you're like, well, that sounds really hard, then don't do it. Mm. Really. If you don't think you can do it and don't want to do it, go find an easier hobby. Mm-hmm. Like seriously. Or go take up drawing. I hear that's much easier. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or the piano, I mean, or take up sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, go out and do something else. But seriously, you know, this episode is semi-seriously called, you know, why you shouldn't be a writer. And the truth is, if you are not really drawn to it, if this is not something you're really calling or you're not serious about it or willing to be serious about it, don't do it, man. Mm-hmm. Really, don't do it. I'm 100% serious when I say that. If you do feel a calling for it and you do feel this is something that you should do in your life, then do it. Absolutely do it. You know, just say, nope, screw you, Rob. I'm going to go do it. And that's fine. (laughs) That's good too. Yeah. But be prepared that everything we've said is true. And there's even a lot of bad stuff that we haven't talked about in this episode. Mm -hmm. Like things that are 
like things that writing can actually do to your health, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's just say writers don't have the most stable marriages in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, there are many, many costs that come with being a writer. There are many benefits that come with being a writer too, mm -hmm. but there are many costs. Yeah. And you have to be willing to pay them to be a writer. It's not that easy. Mm -hmm. Mind you, again, if you feel you're called to it and have no choice, well, then you have no choice <laughs> and you'll just deal with it as you go. Or you can always take the, uh, if you're going to do any kind of creative endeavor, uh, like we were saying, if you do it without any expectation of, of like remittance at any point, mm -hmm. no, that's, that's fine too. You can always like just fart around with doing stuff. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. If I, I'm talking about, of course, about being a serious professional writer as opposed to a hobbyist, mm -hmm. but if you just want to, you know, you know, muck around if you want to be a mucker and just play with writing and that and just write little short stories that you post on Wattpad or something like that, go ahead. Yeah. Like if it's just something you do for a little bit for fun and you don't have any great aspirations for it, go ahead. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's fine. Although there's a um, risk there too because you never know if you're going to get hooked. <laughs> there is that, yes. Yeah. That's true. Or again, opportunity costs. Like back to the whole economics thing. Yeah. You might be spending time doing something that you shouldn't be doing you i mean you could get better results by doing something else mm -hmm. i mean i do believe that people should generally try almost every hobby once yeah just to see if they actually have a talent for it or see if they like it mm -hmm. and even or even at different stages in your life i mean um my father's a good example i mean for most of his life he played the piano a bit but that he wasn't uh into music that much overall i guess he Basically played the piano for his whole life. Let's go with that way. And then one day he picked up a guitar and discovered that it was the most wonderful thing in the world. And he <laughs> loved playing guitar. Mm -hmm. That's that's a completely true story. He's My father has like a dozen guitars now and like loves to play guitar. Wow. How good he is at it. Well, he's better at playing the guitar than he was at the piano. Let's put it that way. Huh. Um, but that was just something that at a certain phase in his life, he tried it and he fell in love with it. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you sh you should try different hobbies, and I guess you should try them at different times in your life because sometimes they click and sometimes they don't. Yeah. And I think that's um, actually not a bad spot to end this. I think that, <laughs> uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a mucker, but just be aware that if you be try to go pro, it's a hard road. Yeah. It really is. And you have to be aware that there are costs and there are consequences to it. Mm -hmm. But, again, if you feel called to it, yeah. Why not? Or if you want to have fun, eh, why not? Yeah, you never know. You might be the next great dinosaur pornography creator. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, right now, it's uh, insect porn, I think, is probably selling much better than dinosaur porn. But, you know, whatever. Wow. Okay. I'm never going on the internet again. Rule 34, man. <laughs> Rule 34. That's the way it is. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Good night, folks. Talk to you later. <sighs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!